0: Well, here we find once again Jesus predicting His death to the disciples there in verse 32. And it tells us there that the disciples did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask Him about it. They didn't understand because Jesus continually refers to Himself as the Son of Man, referring to a vision of Daniel 7, which I've mentioned to you before. It's where Daniel tells us you are working to get a candidate elected. And maybe some of you even did that this past election. Well, one day the candidate gathers you and the other workers to himself, or gathers you around him and says, this campaign is going to end with me losing and being assassinated by the opposition. I mean, you would probably go... Why am I backing this candidate? He's crazy. What's he talking about? What in the world does he mean? Well, the disciples feel the same way. They were thinking, well, Jesus is the Son of Man from Daniel 7. He's coming in power and glory, and all the kings of the world are going to be under his dominion. Why in the world does he keep talking about dying? You see, the thought of the Son of Man, the Messiah, dying does not even enter into their conception. They can't fathom a dying Messiah. So when Jesus talks about it, it just enters their ears and out the other side. Not only did they not understand what he was talking about, it tells us here that they were afraid to ask him about it. They were probably worried that they would be rebuked like Peter was back in verse 33 of chapter 8. So they continue to ignore what Jesus was saying. He's predicted his death already a few times and he's going to do so again well their reaction to Jesus's prediction of his death sheds much light on the next section of this reading that we have before us when Jesus calls them out for arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven now why would they be arguing about who is the greatest in Christ's kingdom well if you go back to Daniel's vision there in Daniel chapter 7 about the Son of Man, Daniel, further down, interprets that vision. And he says this, "...the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His, the Son of Man, His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him." So according to Daniel... Uh, The dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Now, if the dominion and the greatness of Jesus' kingdom is going to be given to his followers, then these 12 guys are first in line for that power and glory. So their concern seems to be which one of us is actually the number one guy. Which one of us is going to get the first portion when all the kingdoms of the world are divvied out? So you can understand why they were arguing. But it seems that the disciples were primarily interested in gaining power and glory for themselves. That was their chief concern. They were literally Jesus' closest followers. So when he came to power and started handing out positions, they would be first in line. And their idea of following Jesus seems to be to ride his coattails all the way to easy street, to power and influence. Now, we may not think about that a whole lot in our day and time, about Jesus handing out power and position to us. But nonetheless, we are very similar to the disciples in desiring power and glory the power and glory that comes from Jesus without any of the sacrifice and service that Christ calls us to. Many people today, especially in our culture in in the United States, have a consumer mentality. We're so used to being served by places we go and getting what we want. We want to have it our way. You can do that at Burger King. Uh, You can go other places, and and it tells you all the time, here's what you deserve, you deserve this, and we're going to give it to you. We have this consumer mentality is beaten into our brains through advertising, and it appeals to our selfishness, the selfishness in our hearts. We ask, what's in it for me? How can Christ and Christianity benefit me and my family? That's often the attitude people approach the church with. And as long as people sense that the church, Christianity, is working for them, they stick with it. But as soon as the going gets tough, they feel Christianity is not working for them, then they abandon ship. And that's why there's so much church hopping these days. Well, if you won't tell me what I want to hear or do what I want you to do, then forget about it. I'll go somewhere else where they do. It's a consumer mentality. Now, Jesus is telling the disciples and us today that we're asking the wrong questions. Instead of asking, what can God do for me? Jesus says we should be asking, how can I serve others and thus bring glory to God? Now, of course, Jesus does everything for us. The Bible tells us that in and through Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Through Christ, there's inestimable benefit to being a Christian. However, that should not send us on a lifelong pursuit to get mine, to get what I want. Rather, that knowledge that Christ has sacrificed himself and blesses us with every spiritual blessing should propel us outward to a life of service and ministry to God and others. Now, the disciples here are all about getting what was theirs, and Jesus has to call them to himself and try to teach them that their idea of discipleship is mistaken. And now what follows in verses 33 to 50 is Jesus teaching them characteristics of true discipleship. I have three, three heads that I'm going to summarize these things in. First of all, like Jesus, disciples must take service seriously. Secondly, like Jesus, disciples must take ministry seriously. And then finally, like Jesus, disciples must take sin seriously. So three, three things, service, ministry, and sin. To be a true disciple, to be like Jesus, we have to take these three things seriously. Service, first of all. Jesus predicts his death, and he tells the disciples that they need to be servants. Jesus himself came to be a servant, In the next chapter, we'll be reading it here pretty soon. In verse 45, it tells us that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. How did He serve? As verse 31 tells us, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him. And when He is killed after three days, He will rise. John tells us greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus' entire mission was a mission of service. His entire life was about service. Jesus was a servant and he is telling these men, his disciples, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me and go where I go, then you must be a servant. The same is true of us who would desire to follow Christ, to be his disciples. Now to make the point, verse 36 tells us that that he brings in a child. And he puts them there in the, in the midst of the disciples and himself. And he takes the child in his arms and he says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now what does he mean by that? What is he, what's the point he's trying to make? Well, to welcome a child or to receive a child, if you, if you do that, then you're taking or welcoming and receiving a weak and dependent being into your care. Children have extensive needs, and they give very little in return. They they don't have the ability to, and especially when you look at it in the context of Jesus Day. In Jesus Day, children had a very much much a much lower social status than they do today. There's not as much sentimentality about it about children. Uh, but even today, people whose careers or full time work is to care for children are in general paid less and have a lower Social status. So, children, to, to take care of a child means that you're just serving and giving and you're not getting anything in return. And he says, This is the, the example. Jesus is saying, If you want to be first, then you must be servant of everyone, even the smallest, most insignificant people who cannot offer you anything in return. If you receive and serve the least, then you receive Jesus, he says. And that takes us to Matthew 25 that we read earlier when he says to them, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Now this completely runs against what the disciples were after, the power and the glory. And it runs against our what's in it for me attitude. Now Jesus doesn't treat you or I like that. Just think if, if, if he had an what's-in-it-for-me attitude, he would have never come to earth. He certainly would have never laid down his life on the cross. But the writer of Hebrews tells us, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and despised the shame. The joy of saving poor lost children from their sins, from unquenchable fire of hell that he mentions later in the, in the passage. Let that propel you out into a life of service to others, Christ served you. Christ saved you. Go and serve others. If we would be His disciples, then like Jesus, we must take service seriously. Jesus tells us. Now, secondly, we see that Jesus, to like Jesus, disciples must take ministry seriously. Verse thirty-eight. It tells us here that John says, "You know, teacher, we saw this guy casting out demons in your name, uh, and he was obviously doing something." That reminds us that. They just failed to cast out some demons. And here's this guy over here. He's casting out demons in Jesus' name. And we told him to stop because he was not following us. There was somebody out there doing good in the name of Jesus, but he was not on the team. Maybe this guy casting out demons was Baptist or Methodist or some other denomination. And surely Jesus would commend John for stopping a fellow from doing good who is not under their authority and control. Now, I hope you see what I'm getting at here, what I'm doing. We often think other ministries are not legitimate because they're not on our team. Now, sometimes as leaders, we can even, even leaders can squelch ministry because it's not under our authority and control. Now, Jesus has quite a different attitude than that. He says in verse 39, Don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. In other words, don't stop him. We need all the friends we can get. If he's not against us, then he is on our team. In other words, you know, we're all on the same team, and be a team player yourself. Now, we need to exercise discretion and caution and not sacrifice the truth of the gospel In the name of working with people, we need to use wisdom. And I fear that sometimes, though, we do throw the baby out with the bathwater. What I want you to see is that Jesus takes ministry seriously. If you look at verse 41, he says, "...whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward." Now, Jesus is saying that even the smallest service in his name and for his sake is valuable. It will be rewarded, even something so small as giving a cup of cold water to someone. Notice that he says you. He gives you a cup of cold water. He's speaking to the disciples. He wants the disciples to see the significance of ministry. Even the smallest service, John, he's saying, you should appreciate and value even the person who would do do such a small thing like giving you a cup of water. Not tell them to stop, but encourage it. Be thankful for it. Well, what is your ministry? What is your ministry? Now, it may be something with wow factor like casting out demons. And it might be something very small or simple as giving a cup of cold water to someone. Either way, if you're a believer today, your ministry is significant to Jesus and will be rewarded. Now, I want us to be the kind of church that values the gifts that everyone has and encourages them to use his or her gifts, even to facilitate that happening. If you have a ministry idea, I want to encourage you to bring it to the elders and we'll try to avoid acting like John. If we would be His disciples and like Jesus, we must take service seriously and ministry seriously. And also we see that like Jesus... Disciples must take sin seriously. Jesus took sin seriously. And he states that concern in the strongest terms here. He gives two aspects to this concern. It is serious business to cause someone else to sin. It is also serious business to sin yourself. First, he says in verse 42, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Uh, A millstone was a large stone uh, that was uh, in a round trough and a, a donkey would pull this, or maybe even a team of donkeys, would pull this stone around the circle and they would pour in the grain and it would crush the flour, crush the grain to make flour. So obviously the stone is extremely heavy. Jesus says that causing someone to sin is so bad that you would be better off having this large stone tied to your neck and thrown into the sea. In other words, you would be better off dead. It is is better to be dead than to cause someone to sin. Notice that he says little ones. He's turning back to the children. And he's speaking to the disciples and, and warning them as people in positions of authority not to be a stumbling block to those who are vulnerable. Now, as sinners, we're all vulnerable. And we need to be careful not to leave lead anyone else into sin. I know people who actually think it is amusing to get other people to sin. Well, Jesus doesn't think it's funny. Sin is a destructive and enslaving and and enslaving force that must be avoided at all costs. We must work for other people not to sin. And also, you look at verse thirty-three: do everything to keep ourselves from sin. He gives these extreme examples. If your hand causes a sin, cut it off. Uh, If your foot causes a sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to be without these things than to be thrown into hell. Now, when you think about Jesus and how He took sin seriously, I mean, His life was a statement to that. He took sin so seriously that He became cut off for us cut off from love, from His Father's love, as He bore the wrath of God on the cross. He endured the unquenchable fire of hell on the cross as He suffered and died for. Now, we are sometimes very flippant about sin, but Jesus was never so. He laid down His life. He suffered greatly on the cross and in His soul for our sin... And we shouldn't be so flippant about something that Jesus gave his life to eradicate. This passage is telling us to serve people in any way possible to help them avoid sin and do everything possible to avoid sin ourselves. It's a very serious business. And if we would be his disciples, we need to take that seriously. Now he concludes with some sayings about salt. And I think he's just summing up the teaching. That he's just given. First he says everyone will be salted with fire. Uh, The fire of trouble. The fire of difficulty and persecution. The world is a difficult place in which we live. It's a broken world. uh, It's a sinful world. And we're sinners in it. And it is difficult. Everyone has trouble. I believe that's what verse 49 is saying. And the world... Needs Christians in this in this troubled world, there needs to be Christians who are salt a positive influence in this broken, sinful world, but arguing amongst yourselves and jockeying for position and and out for power grabs, that makes Christians lose their effectiveness. The salt is not salty anymore, so he's saying. Be a positive influence. Have salt in yourselves. Don't argue about who's the greatest. Rather, serve and love one another. May Jesus make it so in our lives. May we be a church, people of God, who are characterized by service and ministry and holiness. Let's pray together.